from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. Joining us in this conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program, both of which I started 30 years ago. My gosh, 1991. Now I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And you can visit totalleadership.org for information on what we do to help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives while improving performance in all of them. It can be done. We have the data, we have a method, and all kinds of free resources available to you there. Also, I'm happy to announce that I've released just recently an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four Way Wins. It's on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform with an extensive library of really great courses. You can listen to my course and others like it at Himalaya.com. And if you enter the promo code WINS, At checkout, you get your first 14 days free. Hope to see you there. Let me also note that just this week, I uh, was the lead signatory on a letter that we got 350 plus business and management school professors from around the United States to sign uh, and to write to uh, the president, the vice president of the United States and all members of Congress urging them to establish a national paid family and medical leave program as one of America's top economic recovery priorities. Uh, you can see the text of that letter. Uh, probably the best place to go is my, my colleague on this, Vicki Shabo, who's been on the show a couple of times, uh, S-H-A-B-O. She's at newamerica.org, and you can find the letter there, or you can find it at our site, totalleadership.org. Um, we'd appreciate your support for that. And maybe we'll get into some of that in our conversation today. Um, Before we get into that, though, let me just remind you that listeners can hear this show Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's when it's fresh. And then throughout the week on Sirius XM Channel 132. All right. Well, um, you know, it's never been easy to be a working parent. And that persistent challenge, uh, things changed this last couple of years in the in pandemic times our guest today has some great advice very practical advice for how to find solutions guidance and support uh, as a working parent daisy dowling is the founder and ceo of work parent which is an executive coaching and training firm and this year she published work parent that's one word work parent interesting word very evocative and I think very helpful. We're going to talk about the derivation of that word. It's called Work Parent, the complete guide to succeeding on the job, staying true to yourself and raising happy kids. Daisy, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here, Daisy. Um, let me just say a little bit more about you so listeners uh, can know who is in the conversation today. As an advisor to working parents, Daisy draws on 15 years as a human capital expert and executive coach helping Leaders at all levels improve their performance, drive success of their teams and organizations, and find happiness in their careers. She's worked as a consultant and advisor to clients throughout the world. She's also published articles in the Harvard Business Review and is the series editor for the Harvard Business Review Working Parents Collection of Books. And Daisy, thank you for including me uh, a number of times in that series, the work that I've done and the work, especially with my colleague, co-author Alyssa Westring. Uh, In 2004, her book, Remember Who You Are, on personal authenticity at work, wonderful stories in there from some fascinating people, became an international bestseller and has since been published in nine languages. Well, Daisy, um, so let's, as I often do on this show, I'd love to hear the story of how people got to where they are as just a kind of preamble. So you started out, as I have it, correct me if I'm wrong, in investment banking, and then you transitioned into leadership development. So take us on that journey. How did you get into the field of work and parenting? Yeah. So 
I started my career in business. I was in finance and I realized really early on that what drew me to work and what excited me about work was the people part of it. And it fascinated me to think how people moved ahead in their careers, how they led well, how you found great new hires, how managers managed well, and kind of what that special science and art was. And so I devoted my career pretty early on to that. Now, I I loved being in the human capital business, but there was one thing as as an internal executive coach, an advisor to people who are trying to build their careers that I just couldn't do. And that was, I could give people great career advice, but I couldn't tell them how to build that career, how to manage their calendar, how to delegate, how to think about that next promotion while also doing what they really wanted to do, which mm-hmm. was to show up in the right way, in the way they wanted to for their families. Yeah. And, and so how did you get to be skilled as an executive coach um, from uh, being an analyst in an investment bank? How did that transition happen? And like, where did you get the, the capacity and the, the skill to, to do that work? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to have some great organizational professors when I was getting my own MBA that piqued my interest, that kind of Mm -hmm. opened up the world of leadership development to me. And then I served a really long apprenticeship Mm -hmm. inside mostly financial services firms. So I went back to the field that I knew, but doing a different role. And I worked for a wonderful guy early in my career called Steve Kerr, who had run all of leadership development at GE for many, many, many years. And it was like working for an expert and having sort of my own, again, my own apprenticeship. So I learned how to coach from him and from other great mentors and kept doing it over, over many years in different firms and kept refining and honing my skills. Steve was one of my models when I left uh, Wharton for a few years to run leadership development at Ford Motor Company, which I did from 99 to 2001, he was one of the people who I spoke to and gave me guidance on you know, what he had learned both at GE and then at Pine Street at Goldman. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's one of the, uh, the great innovators in the leadership development space. So um, please continue to yeah, fill, in, fill in the, yeah. the rest of that story. So, so I was cooking along happy in my career, but with the kind of the slightly disconcerting feeling that my impact as a coach was going to be limited if I couldn't thread this needle, if I couldn't give people better advice about how to succeed in a holistic way. And you can see where this movie is going, right? I became a parent myself nine years ago. My first daughter was born. And as soon as that happened, this issue wasn't a professional one. It was also a personal one. And I remember shortly after my daughter arrived, it was a snowy day here in New York City. And I said, there must be some answers to this. Like, how do I, how do I do well in my career and be the parent I want to be and stay myself and healthy and whole in the process? There must be a book for this. So I pushed my daughter in her stroller down to the flagship Barnes and Noble. And I said, where's the working parent section? And the very nice clerk pointed to one part of the bookstore with thousands of books and said, well, there's career. And he pointed to the other side of the bookstore with thousands of books and said, there's parenting. And there were very few things. There were a couple of great books, but there were very few things that really integrated the two. And so that planted the seed in my mind. And I began um, thinking about, well, what kind of service, what kind of coaching could I do for working parents? And that was really the genesis of Hmm. the focus that I have today. Wow. Uh, You know, I've I've been in this field for over 30 years, and there is a ton of uh, research now uh, and has been since, you know, Lottie Balin first wrote about this in the early 70s and Rosabeth Cantor uh, at Harvard and, you know, just so many others who have been addressing this question. um, And it's exploded in the last 10 years. I'm very happy to say it's very gratifying in the early days back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was getting into this uh, field, it was it was rare to talk about work and the rest of life as part of an integrated whole. But, um, you know, over the last nine years here in this show, we've we've talked to so many different people about this uh, space. And I'm, I'm curious to know what you see as I guess the distinctive contribution of work parent to, to that literature. 
Yeah. So when I started writing the book and when I hung out my own shingle and started coaching and just really focusing on working parents, I wanted to do a couple of things. And so I had a, a kind of a specific goal. The first thing was I wanted to make certain that everybody felt included in the working parent conversation. And I know this is something you feel very strongly about as well, but that whether you were a new mom just back from leave or whether you were part of an LGBT family raising kids, or if you were a dad with teenagers, that you could still access some, some good advice and get some non-judgmental, encouraging coaching. I mean, that's what I love to do. But, mm -hmm. but that backup, that practical advice that it could be actionable, but it could also be supportive no matter who you are, no matter what your career, no matter what your circumstances, your field, your function, your phase of parenting, your family structure. So that was the first thing. Mm -hmm. the, second, the second was I wanted to address a lot of the things that were still, at least in my sector, really unspoken. So there was a lot out there about career pathing, about return from parental leave, et cetera. But when I was one-to-one -one coaching parents with the door closed in a conference room or now today on Zoom, so many of the concerns that they bring up are ones that they feel like they can't really bring up with mm -hmm. a lot of other people. How, when, how and when do I expand my family? How do I deal with all the feelings I have around guilt and overwhelm? And how do I do things that are really tactical, like get a healthful family dinner on the table after I've been working for 11 hours today? And so I wanted to delve into some of those areas that maybe weren't quite as explored. And I imagined a guidebook that would feel like, I kept joking when I, with myself when I was writing it, that would feel like the Lonely Planet Travel Guidebook to Working Parenthood. It would mm -hmm. see you through the entire journey and give you the specifics, but let you make the decisions. Yeah, it's really comprehensive and covers you know, every stage of a, of a parent's existence, uh, except there's not a lot for grandparents here. And I want to talk about that being a grandparent myself. I have a number of questions. Well, I'll be asking for a friend, let's say, um, <laughs> about that. Uh, but yeah, one of the um, one of the great features of this work is that it's it's very practical uh, and directive about many different kinds of challenges that many different kinds of people face. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Daisy Dowling, who's the author of Work Parent, The Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself and Raising Happy Kids. So you and your partner, husband, are work parents, right? Yes, yes. What What would you say, and, you know, being in this field too, uh, you know, I, I know what it's like to be thinking about the stuff all the time, writing about it, uh, trying to help other people. Um, and then, of course, trying to live in a way that's in accord with what you are discovering <laughs> through your own uh, practice and, and research and teaching. What would you say is the most important lesson you've learned about cultivating that partnership? I want to start with that from your own experience. Yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's a really good question. And sometimes my clients say, well, you must have this all figured out or something. I want to assure anybody listening that I'm learning as much as anybody mm -hmm. else. I wrote this book because I need to read it. Right. And I have mm -hmm. to remind myself of its lessons all the time, but in terms of the partnership, doing this with a co-parent or a partner or a spouse, I think one thing that's really, really important to do is to give each other some sense of momentum, some high fives and some approbation, right? Because the mm -hmm. world, even if you feel like you're succeeding at your career and your kids are doing well, they're thriving. The world does not give working parents a lot of attaboy, a lot of high five. There are not a lot of times when you're going to feel super motivated. You may have that internal sense of motivation, why I'm doing this. But I think as you balance the day-to-day -day logistics of life, like who's doing pickup and who's putting dinner on the table and do you have a deadline? Am I working late? It's really essential to also pause and to take time in that coordination to also say, you know what? It worked really well last week. Thank you for helping me meet that deadline. Or it was great that we got out all four of us to the park on Saturday. We had a really fun time because otherwise there's no sense of we're doing well and we can keep going on mm -hmm. a really good path. So you provide each other positive reinforcement. Could you give us an example that you're willing to share from your own existence as a work parent with your partner? where that happened in, in, a, in a way that like 
ah, wow, that worked. Or that was, that was helpful. I'm so glad I took the initiative to, you know, with intention, make that happen. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example from today. So one of the great, one of the great ways that we figured out to try and get some good time with the kids is early in the morning. And Mm -hmm. my husband has a great ritual where he gets up super duper early one morning a week and takes the kids out for a leisurely breakfast. So it's this wonderful break midweek where nobody's rushed because they're at the diner having pancakes and they can spend an hour and a half. And it's just sort of this great thing. Uh Now he did, he did that this morning because I had a meeting and couldn't cover the school drop-off. He did that this morning. And so you can bet that I've, you know, even just throughout the course of the day, been like this, you know, this was awesome. You had your great connective time with the kids. Mm-hmm. The kids had a good time. And I was freed up to focus on something that was super important to my business. That's a lovely example. And I think it's an important one to underscore because, uh, yeah, that's my experience as well, that not enough attention is paid to, you know, the affirmations, uh, small and large, that we need to um, you know, maintain our, our, our wherewithal and, and our sense of optimism and hope about what we're doing next and next and next. So, you know, one of the things that you say in, in the book is that it's harder today than it was 30 years ago, like when I was first starting out and when I was a parent of young children, mine are now, you know, 34, 31 and 28. Um, and I've got three grandchildren about whom I do want to talk, Daisy. Did I mention that? I think I yeah. did. We'll be getting yeah. back to that. Awesome. Um, uh, what What do you see as like the major shifts? Uh, it, it, you know, I, I know that you haven't, you know, lived through the last 30 years, but you certainly must be aware of how things are different now. What's your sense of what's most changed in our world and in the world of you know, your readers, your clients uh, over these last few decades that's most significant? Yeah. So when I'm talking to my clients and when I think back to my own you know, upbringing and, and mm-hmm. um, to what things were like 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, not everybody, but a lot of people were living a different demographic reality where one parent or member of the house, uh, adult member of the household had more flexibility or maybe was home full time with the kids. Mm-hmm. That's shifted, not dramatically, but for many people that's shifted. And the, you know, the, the sort of, oh, I've got somebody who can cover this, that that's a, a distinct minority. That's only 25% of American working parent families have a partner full-time at home. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, you know, different than generations past. Second, I think there's a sense now today, and it's well-founded statistically that you sort of always have to be hustling career-wise that you can't stagnate, that you Mm -hmm. can't stay on a, you know, on a plateau. Statistically, somebody who's active in a career right now is only going to be in a particular job or role for four years. Mm -hmm. So you not just have to be doing a great job, but you got to keep your LinkedIn up. You got to keep your network fresh. You're always be on doing- the market in some you're- sense. That there's a constant uh, pressure flow and the mobility patterns are just, they are radically different. So how does that shift the, 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 the world? What, what implications does that have for a working mother or father? It, it amps up the pressure and it amps up the anxiety. And when we add on top of that, the third leg and the kind of most important part of this stool, which is the iPhone. And don't get me wrong. I love my iPhone, my smartphone as much as the next person. It's awesome. It liberates me in a lot of different ways, but it has created a 24 seven, always on experience Mm -hmm. where most people, even in fairly time limited jobs, feel like they need to be checking and available and constantly on. And that means that the time that you have in the evening with the kids or to downshift or relax or do what you need to do to be healthy and whole has has eroded. It's, it's under pressure. And so I think working parents, working parenthood was really hard 30 years ago, but it's just gotten that much more acute. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think a lot of us haven't stepped back and said, Hey, wait, we're, you know, things have gotten increasingly intense and we need to adapt and think about how to meet that challenge or structure our lives in a way that lets us get around it. Yeah, so you spent a lot of time uh, describing working parent burnout, and what what would you say? We we can't get into it all here. Uh, there's so much uh, packed into your book, but w- what's the most important thing for working parents to be mindful of as they uh, first identify 
the 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 symptoms of burnout and and then perhaps more importantly what to do about it yeah i i think one of the most important things we can all do and particularly exiting this pandemic fingers crossed we're exiting it but mm. is figure out where we're going to draw the boundaries so for many or for most of us, the only boundary we've had in the past 18, 20 months has been the mute button, right? We've been working, we've been parenting, we've been Zoom schooling, we've been on all the time and our lives have really blurred. And I think that's created a really palpable sense of strain for many of us. So the first thing when I'm coaching somebody who says, I can't take this anymore, or I feel exhausted. The first thing that I do is help them focus on even artificial ways they can create some distinction between parenting time and professional time that will allow them to feel fully on, focused, capable, on their front foot, doing whatever it is they're doing, whether that's snuggling their toddler or meeting with a client, but that will also allow them to carve out some time that's, that's off, that's neither, that doesn't have to feel productive, where you know, you're not focused on your to-do list. So I, th I think that's it both helps you diagnose, but also helps you begin to take steps to cure this sort of burnout phenomenon, this my tank is empty feeling that so many people have right now. Is that the primary symptom or the first thing that you look for in helping working parents to, to see that they are indeed suffering uh, from burnout? If not, and if not, what, like, how do you help people see you've got a problem or do you not need to do that? Uh, I know you have some tips on on how to see what burnout looks like. Um, what do you see as the most common symptom um, and perhaps the most you know important one to to focus on? Yeah, so usually the coaching clients I have are really good at kind of holding it together and projecting a game face for their kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they're hard workers. It's part of their identity, right? They're competent people. When they come and have conversations with me, usually there's a lot of immediate, wow, I'm ground down. How do I get back on this? How do I find motivation? How do I put gas back in the, into the tank? What we often do together, one of the first things that I like to do with clients is an exercise around what I call their working parent template. Your working parent template is just a mental model that you have of what working parenthood is and means and requires mm -hmm. and really what good working parenthood is. And it's sort of the sum total of the observations and experiences you've had with working parenthood over time. Mm -hmm. It's the special lens you carry and you say, here's what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. and as soon as you can see that template, as soon, and I walk people through where, where have you gotten some of those impressions? And as soon as they begin to see that template, all of those shoulds, I should be able to spend the entire evening with the kids without checking email. I should be cooking dinner for them each evening. I should be working harder or contributing more at work. I should, should, should. As soon as we hear those shoulds, it allows a reset. And if you can get yourself away from the shoulds, which this templating exercise begins, mm -hmm. then you can take charge of working parenthood. You can say, you know what, here's how I'm going to make decisions. Here's how I'm going to feel about working parenthood. I'm not going to be influenced by what I've seen in the past or by how other people are handling this, not by those shoulds, but by about my, here's what I need to, and here's what I want to. And that's, that's the really critical first step. It's, it's, uh, a matter of identifying your own values and I guess having the courage to, to look inside and see what you've, you know, interjected, you know, what you've taken in from your socialization, from, you know, the people around you, the, the implicit messages about what it means to be a, a parent who works and to, um, to claim your own identity as a, as a working parent and, and build from there. One of the things that we know is uh, Caitlin Collins, a sociologist, has done some great work across nationally um, looking at how mothers in particular in three European countries and in the U.S. think about their responsibilities. And what is among many things that are fascinating in her in her work um, is the observation that in in Europe, uh, the assumption is that if things are not working, uh, for a working mother, it's it's not it's not my fault as a working mother. There are problems with you know the institutions surrounding me, the school system, the the, the work system, um, social policy, 
they don't in, they don't internalize that as their fault. Whereas in America, the opposite is true, uh, okay. and that uh, American mothers and probably to some degree fathers too, but I'm sure much less. Don't know the data on this, but certainly from Caitlin's work, we know that American mothers they they take it on themselves and they believe that they should be finding the pro the solutions to the problems on their own. Um, and so one of the things I want to talk about when we come back after the after the break is, um, you know, there's lots more to say about what individuals can do. And that's where your primary focus is. And it's important. And that's indeed where I spend a lot of my time. But I also want to put it in the context of where we are, as I said at the top of the show, with respect to national policy, because one of the reasons why it's so broken, why everyone in our society seems to feel like they're failing, which you point out so poignantly at the beginning of your book is because there's no support for working parents. Yeah. So um, I, I want to get your thoughts on that and also what, what managers can do to help their people. Um, and who knows, we may get to talk about grandparents as well when we come back. Stay with us, folks. We will be right back. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And I am speaking with Daisy Dowling, author of Work Parent. We're going to take a short break and come right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I'm also founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find ways of creating harmony among the different parts of their lives and to improve performance in all of them. My guest today is Daisy Dowling. We're kind of in the same business. She is the founder and CEO of WorkParent, and that's really her focus. It's an executive coaching and training firm, and we're talking about her book. It's called WorkParent, The Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself, and Raising Happy Kids. I didn't ask you about that yet, Daisy. What, how'd you come up with WorkParent, and why is that a useful term? Yeah. So the term really popped into my head one day when I was um, writing a memo for work and I had to say work slash life and work hyphen life and work. And, you know, I was using a lot of that language, which is good. But the way I think of myself and the way I think of other people who I coach and advise and counsel is that they're one person. And I thought, well, maybe it's time for the language to evolve as language does and to mm -hmm. have work and parenting be in one human being and be in one word. And so mm -hmm. I just began referring to the people I was working with as work parents. Mm -hmm. Those two spheres were really important. They were distinct spheres, but the person was one whole unique individual. And so I began using that. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I think it works. Um, and you know, it does convey the sense of, uh, you know, the quest, I suppose, for a, a kind of harmony or coherence in one's life in the different roles that matter. Uh, so before the break, we were talking briefly about um, how it's particularly difficult for American parents uh, because of the lack of social supports in our um, you know, national, state, municipal governments. And, and we're uh, among many uh, here on the show, advocating for change in that realm. Um, and it's one of the kind of implicit, often not spoken about reasons why so many working parents in America are just at their wits end, burning out and feeling like failures because they don't have the kind of supports they need. Um, now, I know your, your emphasis is on empowering those people or giving them solutions that work for them in terms of their own definitions of success. Um, but as you were saying before the break, you know, people hide their struggles right. um, as parents, perhaps out of fear that sharing them will make them look unprofessional or somehow uncommitted or, or, or something. So how do you help people to get past that sense of shame or failure or however you would put it? Yeah. So one of the things that I sometimes do in my coaching is remind people that if it's an American that I'm working with, that, mm -hmm. that they don't have some of those structures. And, mm -hmm. and I, I have them reflect back to me what the structural supports they have are. Maybe they have a supportive grandparent. Maybe they have backup daycare at work, but they maybe don't have 
the same kind of parental leave that they might have elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I think just helping people to think through, okay, oh, wait, you're right. I, I, you know, here's what I have and here's what I don't. And then we move from there and we talk about some of the ways that they themselves can try and do their best in the context that they have, mm-hmm. but we don't shirk the contest, the context itself. And listen, I, I think of this the same way that I think about health, right? If you're going to be a healthy person, you've got to eat right. You got to exercise or move. And you got to manage stress. And, and those three things are all really essential. I think to be a healthy, whole, successful, satisfied working parent, it takes a bunch of different things. You, you've got to have some of those policies in place that back parents up. You've got to have some of those corporate or organizational programs that are so important, like flexibility, like parental leave, like mentoring programs. And then there's the practices that each individual can put in place in terms of their day-to-day life, how they manage their calendar, how they share their needs with their colleagues, et cetera. And if you knock out any one of the three legs of that stool, mm-hmm. the stool can fall over. One of the ways that I help people to share their needs with colleagues is to frame them in terms of how um, any kind of innovative you know, means of, of uh, operating is going to benefit their colleagues and the organization uh, so that it is framed as a win-win. Um, and that helps people to overcome uh, their sense of guilt uh, and fear at trying something new because it would be just for them and not for their colleagues. Uh, what have you found works best in terms of uh, helping people to be more open about what their needs and interests are uh, as parents with their work colleagues? What, what, what's the best advice you've got for listeners in, in terms of how to do that? Yeah, I, I, um, I love that you use the word framing because I, I use that also. And when I work with parents to share what they have going on at the intersection of career and caregiving, I talk to them about putting that message, whatever it is, their need for flexibility or the fact that they have to leave for a pediatrician's appointment, whatever the, whatever the subject is, inside a frame that's bounded by their commitments, their priorities, their next steps, and their enthusiasm. So instead of feeling like you're apologetic and awkward and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to miss that meeting, or I'm so sorry, but I think I need more flexibility in my life. Instead of feeling like you're on your back foot, bring forward the totality of who you are and say, I do need to leave right now because I have to take my eight-year-old to the pediatrician, but I'm going to get the notes from the meeting afterwards. I'm going to make the edits to the document. I'm really excited about how the client is going to receive this on Thursday morning. I think we're in a powerful place. If you say that instead of, oh, I'm so sorry, I need to leave for the pediatrician. Mm -hmm. First of all, you're being more authentic because you're bringing your commitment and your professionalism into the conversation. You're going to feel more powerful. And that conversation is also probably going to land better. It's going to go better. So I do a lot of rehearsal and scripting with people around that full authenticity, as as opposed to just talking about the particular needs I'm leaving for the pediatrician, or I want a four-day work week, or I want to work remotely, put it into a broader context. Yeah. The context of how, what you're asking for is actually good for the collective. Absolutely. Uh, When I first got to Ford in 1999, I had just published a Harvard Business Review article called Work and Life, The End of the Zero Sum Game. That was in November 98. And then a book called Work and Family, Allies or Enemies that Oxford published in 2000. And I'm hired as the head of leadership development for the company. And, uh, you know, the team that I inherited to a one, they all came to me and said, I need this. I need that. I need the other thing. And I said, whoa, you know, they thought I'm Mr. Work Life. I'm going to give them whatever they want because, you know, I'm just a nice guy and I did not. I, I put it back to them and said, okay, how by taking Fridays to work at home, is that going to benefit our business? How's that going to help us? Um, how by you're getting your MBA, you know, taking two afternoons a week off to do that, you know, at the local school, how is that going to make our work more uh high impact in our organization. And I just kept putting that question back to them. And that's become, that's a very useful thing to do because of course I did not have the answers to those questions, but I asked the question and compelled my team to respond. And every single one of them came up with a really good rationale. And then we made it something that we would do collectively. So in our Monday morning, you know, we kick off staff meeting, 
I would say to Joan, all right, so you're training for a marathon and we all know why that's a good thing for you and how that's going to help us. How did you do last week in your training? You're, you're supposed to be running 50 miles a week. How'd that go? Well, I only ran 20 miles. And, but then Sam would say, well, uh, Joan, what's your problem? Did I stand in your way of doing that? Uh, so it became a collective interest, which is something that uh, right. Leslie Perlow, my friend and colleague at HBS, has written and done incredible work in. So by making it a collective interest and in, in putting the, the parenting dilemmas in the context of everyone's work-life issues, right. it, it makes it a lot easier. What do you think? Yeah, I, I tell parents, think of yourself as a peer and as a collaborator. Mm-hmm. And and as soon as you take that stance, it's not about I'm I'm making a request and either black, white, yes, no, uh, being granted, not being granted what I'm asking. You're so, you're doing mutual problem solving. And not only does that have a higher likelihood of you're getting the outcome that you want, it's also a lot more fun, right? Because you're relating to people in a way that feels a little bit less stressful that doesn't feel, you know, so zero sum game to to your point, to your wording. Yeah. And it, it builds trust because you see the struggles that other people are having and they're different than your own. And you can probably find ways of, of uh, helping each other. Um, but in ways that serve the, you know, the career and other life interests of all the different members of your, your group, your team. Um, so that working parents issues don't stand out as, you know, somehow unique and, uh, and, and ones that should be inhibited from being brought forward because everybody's got something uh, that they're trying to do outside Absolutely. of work. Um, and so at the same time, you, you write uh, you, with some wonderful um, tips about how to take time off and take full advantage of what you already have. Tell us about micro cheating which sounds very, very fun. Yeah, it sounds kind of naughty and fun and transgressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, so micro cheating is, um, as I say in the book, it's the time management or the personal time equivalent of taking a little extra packet of post-it notes from the supply closet, right? Yeah, technically you're taking something. I've never that- done that, Daisy. I know. I don't know, I, I don't know why I, you're bringing up that example. It's uh- <laughs> not something I've ever done. We've never done it. None of us have ever done it. But but basically when you micro cheat, you take some very small amount of time that is not requested. It's not permissioned. It's not sanctioned. It's not official. And you use it for yourself or use it for yourself and for your kids. So instead of having a formal flexible work arrangement or asking your boss, if you can leave two hours early, you just, you know, grab your bag and you leave work. 30 minutes before you usually would. And those micro cheats are just enough to give you a sense of control, a sense that you're determining kind of the the contours of your job and your commitment. They allow you to do things like to get to your daughter's ballet recital, you know, Mm -hmm. early so that you can get a good seat and to do some of that important stuff. And 99% of the time, nobody notices. Nobody cares. So exactly. But you chose the term micro cheat. And I have to say it, you know, it evokes a sense of like you're doing something wrong, right? And yet you're you're doing something right by taking care of yourself so that you can be more uh healthy and 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 capable of, of doing all the things that are demanded of you. Absolutely. So, so does does micro cheat does that land well with your clients? I mean, or did they think, oh, no, I can't cheat because that'll be you know, wrong. I'll be found out and I'll be penalized or I'll get a slap on the wrist and people won't like me. Yeah, the, I picked the term because it really plays into that feeling of like, oh, no, I shouldn't be doing that. But when when you walk people through the tactic, OK, so you come in 15 minutes later. So, you know, you're on a business trip and your flight lands at 2.30 p.m. And instead of going back into the you know, into your workplace, you go straight home, right? When we're all, when we will all be traveling Mm -hmm. again, post-pandemic, doing those kinds of small things, we've all done them, right? And we feel kind of guilty about them. But as soon as we have a title for them and we can say, it's just this little, you know, this half a percent of time that we're playing Mm -hmm. with here, it it doesn't feel like such a big deal anymore. Mm -hmm. We can kind of call it out and own it. Well, especially if you see it as something that's going to make you, at least in the if not in the immediate minute of that micro cheat, but you know, over the course of time, it's going to make you uh, 
more likely to be able to contribute to to your team, your organization's success. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking to Daisy Dowling about her book, Work Parent. All right. So um, what what's the most important thing for a manager to know? Uh, who is herself a parent uh, or not in helping her group of people who look to her for for guidance, for direction, for support? Uh, there's a lot of those kinds of folks who are listening right now. What, what's the most important advice you want to offer to them? Yeah, two things. First, be as open as you can possibly be and send a lot of signals that you have things that you care about in your own life. I think there's a lot of managers who are genuinely supportive, who want to go, you know, extend flexibility, who want to back their people up, who want to do the right thing. But when you look at, you know, their Zoom and in the background, you don't see anything that signals that this person has kids, or, you know, there's no pile of laundry in the background. There's not necessarily a family photo prominently displayed. They don't mention the fact that they have to, you know, quit work early this afternoon to, you know, help their child study for that important test, whatever it is, you've got to disclose and share and bring that vulnerability out in a way that might even feel slightly strange or uncomfortable to you. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you do that, it permissions other people to be comfortable with theirs as well. Mm-hmm. And then second, ask a lot of open-ended questions. I think for really good reasons, and you and I have both been in the human capital business a long time, for really good reasons, a lot of people are hesitant to get too pointed and too personal. And Mm -hmm. we should, you don't want to pry, but it's always okay to say, all right, you know, the new school year has started and you know, the person has school-aged kids to simply say, how are you getting on? Mm Mm-hmm. You open up the conversation. It's like you're opening the door and kicking a wedge underneath. And you're telling that person, I'm listening. I'm in receptive mode. It's Mm -hmm. okay. It's safe to talk to me. And you don't know what you're going to hear because no matter what assumptions you make about other people, your colleagues, people on your team, you never have the whole story. Correct. Correct. You don't. Yeah. That's, that's a lovely approach to just say, um, how's it going? Uh, and, and to recognize that you see them as a person. I think that's really important advice. Now, speaking of schools, um, what's, what do you have to say about relationships with teachers? And let me just say, my daughter's a teacher, my youngest child, University of Pennsylvania graduate, um, who double majored in psychology and criminology, and uh, is now a teacher in the Boston Public Schools, teaching special ed there. And let me also say that it's my belief that we should invert the salaries of investment bankers and teachers in America. What do you think? Do you support that idea, Daisy? Yes, 100%. And let me tell you, I am the daughter of a teacher. My mother spent 37 years Mm -hmm. in front of a blackboard in a fourth grade classroom, given her all every single day. So mom, I hope you're listening. But yes, I agree with the salary swap thing. Okay. And I- so we'll go to Goldman together with that one, Daisy. Yeah, I, I got I, the pitch think, deck. We can do this. I think they'll buy it. I think they'll buy it. Definitely. Definitely. OK, you're mocking me, but I'm serious. But uh, to, to what you have to say about uh, the relationship with teachers, a critical yeah. stakeholder in a parent's life, what, what's 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 your advice? become a collaborator with a teacher also. So I think there's this sense that you drop your kid off and the teacher is sort of this slightly fearsome character who sort of evaluates your child and judges them and passes grades and stuff. Which they do. They they do, but they've also dedicated their lives to helping kids move forward and develop. And they can be a great advisor to you. They can give you ideas about things you can do at home to help back your kid up and help their Mm -hmm. learning. And they can do their jobs better the more open you are. So I have two kids, ages eight and nine. The beginning of this year, they're back in in-person school, which is awesome after a long time, but they're wearing masks. So I sent each of their teachers a note at the beginning of the year saying, here's what I think it would be useful to know about my child, about how our house, about our household, just kind of context about our family. And I also want you to know what makes her smile 
because you won't be able to see that her face will be covered. And here are the things that are really going to delight her and that she's looking forward to this year. It was just basic context, but you hear back from teachers like, oh, this it's great context. And Mm -hmm. it allows me to relate to that child. And all of a sudden you have a very different dynamic with the teacher. It's like the two of you are rowing in the same direction towards an awesome fourth grade year, for example. Yeah, thinking of them as collaborators and as sources of support who are, for the most part, you know, grossly underpaid and undervalued in our society and in some way, in some places under attack, uh, you know, whatever you can do, Daisy, and the impact that you're having through your clients and your, your, your coaching to help people, and it seems like you are, um, elevate the value of teachers in our society and, and, and really supporting them in their work, which is one of the you know small silver linings of the pandemic. You know when it first hit, <laughs> there's so many people who I spoke to who thought for the first time, "Wow, teaching is freaking hard, man." Yeah. How, my you know we need to help these teachers be better at it. Um, all right, we've only got a couple minutes left here, and there, there's so much more in the book. Of, as I said at the top, we weren't going to be able to get to everything. It's really p- chock full of wonderful advice. Um, but not that much for grandparents. So maybe that's your next book as you start to grow in your own life, Daisy. But you must have something to say about the relationship between parents and grandparents. If so, what is it? Again, asking for a friend. Yeah. So first of all, if teachers have like a you know special circle someplace in heaven, I think grandparents do too. And I think we've seen that throughout the pandemic. A lot of families have been propped up, gotten through, held together by really, really active grandparents. So I'm sure you're doing a lot for your grandkids. That's awesome. I would say that if you don't have grandparents, people who live near you or can support Mm -hmm. your child in some direct way, that it's really, really critical as you become a working parent while you're expecting, you know, and, and then regularly at every phase of parenthood, that you think actively, if it takes a village to raise a child, who's in that village? Grandparents can be pillars. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have those particular pillars, think about who else could be. It might be neighbors. It might Mm -hmm. be friends. It might be teachers. It might be paid caregivers. It might be all kinds of different people. But your job as the working parent is to be the mayor of this village and to Mm -hmm. keep recruiting and motivating and rewarding and being there and giving direction to the villagers. And Grandparents are awesome, but other people can be awesome too. Yeah. Friends, neighbors, other extended family. Um, we devote a lot of attention, Alyssa Westring and I, in, in our book, Parents Who Lead, to how you uh, think about uh, and engage in, in a mutually productive way the various people uh, that, that a child needs for, to thrive as, as, uh, as, as people, as citizens. Um, we are nearing the end of our time here. Um, what makes you optimistic? Let me ask in closing here about the future of parenting in our world. Yeah. So I think this pandemic has been, and I'll put this mildly, it's been a doozy, right? I wouldn't wish this again for a hundred million reasons on anybody. It's been tough at the same time. I am excited that I think in a way the working parent genie has been really let out of the bottle. It's really hard for managers, for leaders, for policymakers to ignore what happened over the past 20 months, almost 21 months. And so I think we're at a time where it feels like, gee, we made a lot of progress and we still don't have some of these national policies, but I think we're at an inflection point. And I think historically, like when we look back on this time, we'll say it started then, the good stuff started then. So looking 15 years out, when you know your kids are starting to think about creating their own families, what are you hoping the world's going to look like for them? Yeah, well, I hope a couple of things. I hope there's um, a guarantee of a, a good leave that they don't have to beg, borrow, steal, negotiate to put together a parental leave for themselves, whatever career they decide to go into. I hope that quality daycare, and I use that term as generically and broadly as possible, is easy to find, easy to access, and affordable. And I hope that flexibility in every different sense of that term is kind of a non-issue. Like people can talk about it. They may not be able to get exactly what they want, but that the idea of 
asking for and talking about the value of, to your earlier point, talking about the value and what they can, how they can contribute, what they can do when granted a certain amount of flexibility is completely destigmatized. And I feel like if we can get to those three things, we'll be in, you know, that's going to be a sea change. We'll be in a whole new ballgame. So how will working parents think differently about what it means to be a, a parent in America in 2036? Yeah. So I think the thing that's really going to be a fundamental shift, and I have this sort of, this is the, in the conclusion of my book, is that it will be a point of pride. So mm-hmm. if you talk about, or if you Google working parenthood now, that the images, the mental images, the dialogue that comes up is of stress and strain and being harried and it being difficult and all that kind of stuff. Right. And what I think is going to happen is that people are going to say, I'm a working parent. And that's going to be a point of loud and proud. Exactly. That's going to be something people want to bring forward. And that's going to be seen as admirable and, and beautiful. Well, thanks for carrying that banner, Daisy, and thanks for being my guest uh, today. How can listeners find out more about your work? You can go to www.workparent.com on my website. You can sign up for my free coaching newsletter, which guides you through different aspects of the Working Parent Challenge. And you can pick up a copy of my book, Work Parent. Well, all right. Um, Thanks again, Daisy. It's been fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And greatly informative. Thanks for joining us, for listening in. Uh, Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show today, you can just email me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. I love hearing from listeners. And our station, if you want to write to our station and complain about the stupid things that I say on air, just write to them at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. No, don't do that. Um, and follow our show on Twitter at, at SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman. You can find edited versions of our shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org. And there's also all kinds of other resources there for free videos, book chapters, articles, and lots more um, about how we help people create harmony and improve performance in all different parts of life. Thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. We'll see you next week.